Support for this WXAV podcast is being provided by Bookies, new and used books. Located at 10324 Southwestern Avenue in Chicago. With a second location at 2015 Ridge Road in Homewood, Bookies specializes in new and used books. Their selection includes new releases, children's books, and bestsellers. For more information and upcoming events, please visit bookieschicago.com. You can also find them on Facebook by searching Bookies Chicago. This podcast is being brought to you by WXAV 88.3 FM and WXAV.com. WXAV, bringing the best podcasts to you. So Chris, I have to ask, it's the ubiquitous question. How are you holding up in this COVID-19 world? Oh man, you know, I'm, I'm just like all of us. It's weird. Everything's pretty strange, but but it's okay. I've kind of enjoyed being home like this. I've never actually been home this much. I don't think at any point in my life because even when I was a kid, we were, I mean, we always lived in the same place, but we would go places like every weekend. Um, or my dad was a musician, so I'd go with him or like we'd go to a place up in the mountains in Western Maryland. I'm from Virginia, kind of DC area. So I don't think I've ever been this stationary at any point in my life and it's been kind of great like i had no idea what it felt like to wake up in my own bed every night uh for you know five months without interruption it's been it's been kind of cool you know i was wondering um can you share with us how you first discovered uh folk music and acoustic music well you know i kind of come by it honestly in the sense that um, my parents both met through the five-string banjo. My father played banjo in a bluegrass band called The Seldom Scene. There was, you know, there were a really kind of influential band. Um, and so so th- I would, you know, go out with them on the weekends and and uh, hear them play. And, you know, they'd play at festivals with all the, you know, Bill Monroe and Tony Rice and just everybody. You know, they were they were kind of one of those they were peers with all those people. Mm-hmm. And and so I was kind of exposed to it a lot through osmosis. And uh, and also, like I said, my parents were both banjo players. That's how they met. Um, and so, you know, my mom was uh, bombarding me with uh, five-string banjo playing when I was in the womb. <laughs> and so it, it's just kind of been a part of my life um, always. Now, that being said, I, I, I always loved music, but I, I didn't initially take any interest in the kind of music that my folks played because that's often sort of the natural way of things for kids you know i i wanted to play electric guitar and my friend jay starling whose whose father um was john starling the the uh, lead singer for the seldom scene jay was two and a half years older than me and he started playing electric guitar and got he was sort of a prodigy got really good really fast and my, my older brother ben also was a really good electric guitar player so I kind of wanted to be like those guys, and and so I started playing electric guitar, and I was really lousy at it, um, like mm-hmm. like super bad. But but um, you know, eventually, uh, my you know my my interest started to change, and I started checking out all kinds of different music, and I really got you know obsessed with music. I got super into it, kind of in my early uh, teenage years, you know, probably nine to nine to thirteen or fourteen. It was a thing that I did and was excited about. And and when I was about 14 years old, my mom gave me a record by Tony Rice one year for Christmas called Acoustics. And I, at that point, I'd been listening to a lot of jazz and kind of like, um, 
you know, Bela Fleck and the Flecktones and Chick Corea and Alan Holdsworth, all this like kind of wild stuff. And, um, and when I got this, my mom got me this Tony Rice record. It had this um, sense of rhythm that was so um, familiar, just felt really nice and at home because Tony Rice, of course, for people who are listening who aren't familiar with him is, is the great bluegrass guitar player, the kind of all time, he's the guy who defines the sound, in my opinion, of bluegrass guitar. But he also was a really wide ranging musician who did many different things and, and, and changed the music in many ways. And he went through a phase where he played nothing but instrumental kind of string band jazz. Uh, you know, he hooked up with the great mandolinist David Grisman and, and they kind of did all this stuff. And, and so that's the music I heard and I could, I could relate to it in, in that it was sort of sophisticated like a lot of the other music that I had gotten into, but it had this um, grounding in kind of string band music, bluegrass, mm -hmm. that kind of the pulse that's kind of just inherent in that music. And I think because I'd grown up around that stuff, you know, it just made sense. And I got really into it. Um, and then it's kind of been, it was kind of off to the races. That's awesome. Um, now, you mentioned earlier that your dad was the banjo player for the group, The Seldom Scene. Um, but you were actually able to join The Seldom Scene and play with them for a little bit. What was it like being able to play music with your dad and go on tour with your dad? It was it was really cool. I mean, of course, at first it was like pure uh, nepotism. You know, it's like <laughs> I mean, I could play, but it was there are plenty of other people who could play great guitar too who weren't playing with the seldom scene. But but um, you know, it was really fun for me on the level of getting to learn from these really great um, super seasoned, you know, just consummate pros. You know, really and. So, so that was really cool. And then on a personal level, it was really beautiful for me to get to spend all that time with my dad because, you know, my parents got divorced when I was very young and they, they had a, they always maintained a really great relationship, uh, despite, you know, what must be insane going through a divorce. Uh, but they always were friendly and stuff, but, uh, I fundamentally grew up in my mom's household and so it was really cool later in life that I could go and spend all this, you know, time, like quality time um, in, in this really particular way with my dad when I got a little older and we'd go play gigs, we'd play music together, we were traveling together. Um, it was it was really cool. I feel super lucky to have, um, you know, gotten to do that that way. So, Chris, I was wondering if you could um, share with us the story of how you started playing with uh, Julian Lodge. Yeah, well, Julian, um, Julian's really, truly one of my favorite musicians um, on planet Earth. He's one of my favorite musicians ever. I mean, Julian is 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 a is a super dear friend, but he's he's kind of a constant inspiration. So that project is super near and dear to me, even though we don't get to do it very often. Um, we initially met at a Punch Brothers show back in 2008 in Boston. Uh, at, we were playing at the Museum of Fine Arts, and Julian was living in Boston at the time. And he he came to the show because uh, Chris Thiele and Bela Fleck were going to play on his first record. Mm -hmm. um, and so he, I don't think he'd actually met Thiele yet. Um, so he came to the show just to kind of say, hey, and uh, he and I wound up you know he stashed his guitar backstage before the gig and we started talking because 
um, you know, guitar players uh, stick together, birds of a feather and all that. And so we, um, we played some tunes that night and it was really, really enjoyable. And we just kind of hit it off and, and he'd grown up in the Bay Area um, around David Grisman, who I mentioned earlier when I was talking about Tony Rice. David Grisman, you know, being one of the the all-time great mandolin players and 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 probably the um the first real pioneer of of bringing mandolin into um kind of modern um American string band music. Like I mean you could say Bill Monroe uh you know was creating modern American string band music. It was super modern and radical and we when we look at that old bluegrass now it it seems like it's been around forever. But Dave, if you hear David Grisman's music, uh, he was kind of integrating all that, the bluegrass stuff with kind of more um, sophisticated harmonic ideas, some more sophisticated rhythms, kind of bigger uh, forms, um, just all kinds of cool influences. And so anyway, he was this titan and Julian grew up really close to him and they started hanging out. And Julian was this jazz guitar prodigy, and Grisman would invite him over and then send Julian home with, you know, a old Martin from the 30s, like a, you know, Martin Triple O guitar. Um, and so Julian always had this secret, you know, he was this jazz guitar prodigy, but he had this secret uh, love of flat top steel string guitars because he'd hang out with Grisman and he'd play all these like super remarkable instruments. And and so when we kind of got together, you know, he I, I kind of was meeting this guy who had this like secret passion, you know, uh, that he he loved these flat top steel string guitars. And and it, it was just it was just kind of a really um, exciting first meeting. And we stayed in touch and eventually he moved to New York. And, you know, when I had a gap in the Punch Brothers schedule, I just said, like, let's let's do something. And we did. And, and uh, a lot of times it's funny. It's it's the only thing it takes to get something started is just the conversation or just say, like, let's do something. OK, like, can we put a date on the books? Yeah. You want to start on November 13th? Yes. OK, great. And then all of a sudden you've got a project because there's a date on the books. And that's that's kind of what happened with Julian. But it turned out to be this really beautiful project. that's that's certainly super uh, sacred um, to, to to us. So now your main project over the last decade or so have been the Punch Brothers. Um, for you, what has it been like to see the band grow and evolve over the years? You know, it's funny from from my perspective, it's all just felt very natural. Um, I feel very fortunate to be a member of that band and to have relationships with those people. And, that you know, that we kind of get to, you know, kind of have this super long-term musical journey together, you know, where, um, where we're just kind of pushing ourselves and pushing each other. And, um, so, I mean, when I think about our first record, what it really was, uh, the centerpiece of that record was a piece of a four movement suite that Chris Thiele, our mandolin player wrote. And, um, he was going through a, a divorce and he was playing in uh, Nickel Creek, which is another band that that he is in uh, at the time. And and I think he just was he was a kind of early mid twenties. I think he was kind 
of at a, a place where he really and he's also super brilliant i mean Thiele's, yeah you know he's he's kind of off the charts brilliant yeah, and and i think he had all this crazy stuff that he just wanted to get out of his system and and he started writing this piece and he kind of called all of us together um to work on it because normally you know he was on his previous records he you know had like our all of our heroes like bela fleck or you know edgar meyer or you know jerry douglas those guys would play on those records but this thing that he was writing was just going to take a lot more work than those guys probably was were going to be willing to give to it and um and so he called all of us, um, but it was this really, really ambitious project. Um, and so it kind of established right out of the gate this paradigm where we were willing to work really hard and push ourselves really, really hard. Um, and that first, that first record really was, you know, his music more than anybody else's for sure. Um, now over time, so, so that just kind of established this paradigm. We were, we were willing to work hard and, and just do do wild stuff. Over time, we we started uh, writing music together and trying to uh, you know just compose things as a group. And and Thiele, of course, he's just based on his personality type and the the way his brain works. He still has like a, a huge um, and and maybe in some ways uh, dominant influence on the music to this day. But but after that first record. We, we really started writing everything together. And so um, you, there's kind of a progression, I think, of just how we learned to write better music for us as a band. Um, we figured out how to write stronger parts. We figured out um, how to, you know, all, all of us were listening to all kinds of different stuff all through the years. And, and obviously your tastes change. And, and so to me, it's just been a very natural progression a result of the stew of of the five of us um just being together learning from each other listening to music loving music working on music it's just kind of unfolded uh in a in a sort of natural way by the way sorry that's my dog stan in the background and oh man no worries whatsoever. and he's probably just gonna bark so but we'll be all right is there any new music on the horizon well you know we're going to um like everybody else, um, we had a bunch of stuff on the books. Not a bunch, but we had stuff on the books for this past summer, and it got canceled. But we're gonna we're gonna be circling up um, this fall for a little while, and we'll see if we get anything out of it. But we we you know everybody's we're gonna convene um, and and really kind of just work on music, workshop music. Maybe we, who knows if, if anything good comes out of it, we might record some of it. Um, we'll just see. We've, we've got about a month together and it's a very, in the past we've, we've had more of a game plan. We've had like more time to kind of plan. This is sort of like, we're going to get together and just go. But although that's, I'm pretty excited about that. What I consider, and actually what we consider to be our first record was a record that came out under Thiele's name called How to Grow a Woman from the Ground. And it's really, it really is the first Punch Brothers record um, in many ways. But we had six days from the first day we got together, you know, and played the first of the, there were 14 songs on that record. When we played the first of those 14 songs for the first time, to the time that we, you know, finished the last take, like in the recording studio was, was a six day span. 
that's like that was really really fast especially for 14 songs and especially considering some of that stuff had some you know arrangement and complicated bits in there and i really love that record because it's um it has a real life force to it it's just kind of it's kind of unpolished um and just super it's an honest expression of what you know all of us sound like in a room playing music together just as ourselves so which i find to be really um fun and and compelling so i'm i'm looking forward to to this new uh whatever you know whatever happens in november if it winds up amounting to anything or not who knows but I'm, i'm quite looking forward to it so chris um you know, WXAV is a college radio station. And uh, I was just curious, um, what kind of impact did college radio have on your career? Um, but also, are you a fan at all of, of college radio? Oh, man, college radio is so great. Um, it, You know what? College radio is amazing because the the way it gets programmed. So I went to Oberlin College in Ohio, and w, we had WOBC. Um, and it was staffed, of course, like most college radio stations, by just all students who who had all these you know slots throughout the week, um, and 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 they got to just play. They had the opportunity to dedicate two hours to whatever they thought was cool, and and you know young people are super enthusiastic, and lo- young people then tend to love to share things, and so the idea of giving college students who are super enthusiastic and loving and they love to share things a platform where they can really share all this stuff that they're like super geeking out on uh musically and they really care about that doesn't really get represented um on mainstream radio certainly commercial radio um is beautiful because you can just hear and discover all kinds of music that you simply wouldn't stumble across um, otherwise and and today it's it's weird you know you know the internet obviously brings us you know the whole world's at our fingertips and all that but but also um, it's not really that e- because there's so much stuff available it's not that easy to just find new stuff there, there's such a you know uh, you you can drown in in options and so to have again a platform like college radio where you have djs who are super into whatever it is that they're doing um you can just kind of turn it on and have it on in the background and just hear cool music that you never heard before and then you can go do your research and and if it speaks to you so i think i think college radio is really 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 valuable i'm grateful for it so, Chris, if there was one album you would recommend everyone listen to on on vinyl, um, what would it be and why? Ooh, good call. Um, well, man, that's a great call. You know what? I'm going to go with something that's a little uh, specific to my heroes and my influences just because people may not know it. Um, and that would be um, Church Street Blues by Tony Rice. It's a, it's a really, to me, it's, it's like this uh, super desert island kind of disc. Um, and it, it was a record that he, he was one of the most beautiful singers ever in bluegrass. Um, and 
you know, like I said, he went off, played all this instrumental with music with David Grisman. And, and he had been kind of like the, the, the superhero of, of the bluegrass scene of the day. I mean, he was like the, as far as being a lead singer and he just stopped singing and people were really sad about that. Um, but after he'd kind of not been singing for a while in the early eighties, he made a series of records where he did start singing again. Uh, he made a brother duets record with Ricky Skaggs. That's really great called Skaggs and Rice. That's also worth hearing on vinyl. He started making these albums called the Bluegrass Album Band, uh, where they were just playing super, you know, hard driving, uh, ass kicking bluegrass. Um, but but it was all these modern guys doing it. But then, to me, like the the crown jewel of that era of him coming back to singing was this record called Church Street Blues. And that's just him playing guitar and singing. And that's it. His brother Wyatt accompanies him on, there are like two or three instrumentals on the album. But otherwise, it's just Tony Rice playing and singing these beautiful songs. And the guitar playing is incredible. And it's so elegant. The music's so elegant. And his singing is so beautiful. It sounds like a trumpet. Uh, but with with like the can a trumpet that can say words and um and it's just it's killer it's a it's a real desert island disc it's a constant reference for me and and kind of a lot of people um kind of in in the string band music community just because the the level of musicianship is so high but it's it's all it's ultimately all about heart too it's not like an exercise in technical virtuosity it kind of shows everything that's so beautiful about Tony Rice. So that's my long-winded answer, like all my answers about my favorite, uh, the record that everybody should hear on vinyl. And that was my conversation with the one and only Chris Eldridge from the Punch Brothers. I want to take a moment to thank Chris for giving so generously of his time last week. We really appreciate it. Please be sure to follow Chris on all the social media platforms. He's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also uh, visit his official website, chriseldridge.net. Thank you very much for listening to this WXAV 88.3 FM podcast. Be sure to visit our website, wxav.com, for more information on your escape from ordinary radio.